This podcast is sponsored by Omgeo. Omgeo's protocol is an end-to-end collateral management system to automate processing and mitigate counterparty risk. Supporting bilateral and cleared OTC derivatives, exchange-traded derivatives, repos, SEC lending, and forward-settling transactions such as TBAs, Protocol provides a holistic view into a firm's exposure while enabling automated STP to manage margin and collateral calls across the entire trading operation. To find out more how Omgeo's protocol can help your firm fundamentally change the way you manage your collateral, please visit omgeo.com. Omgeo is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Depository Trust and Clearing Corp, DTCC. Hello and welcome to a DerivSource podcast. I'm Julia Schieffer, the founder and editor of DerivSource.com. Since the financial crisis, regulation is pushing as many instruments as possible onto electronic exchanges and through central clearing. It is too early, however, to call voice trading dead. Take the recent depreciation of the Swiss franc and the sudden shutdown of the Bloomberg terminal network. Traders took to the phone. The same is true for those thornier, less liquid trades that do need the human touch. In this podcast, we talk to Fred Ponzo, Managing Partner at Graysmart Consultancy, and Stu Taylor, CEO of Algamy, who both give their insights into the changing trading landscape. Here is DerivSource reporter Lynn Strong and Dodds speaking to Fred Ponzo and Stu Taylor. Thank you very much for both of you taking part in this podcast. The first question is general. I'll start with you, Fred. It's many trading desks have reconfigured their offerings, but high touch of voice is still a very important component. For example, people turned to voice when Switzerland depreciated its currency and the Bloomberg terminals went down. How do you think the industry will develop in terms of voice and electronic trading? There is a general misconception that electronic is there to replace voice and if you do one you can't do the other the reality is it's always going to be a continuum of liquidity provision and negotiation mechanisms and voice and electronic are very much complementary so when everything's fine and there is limited volatility in the market and there are no disruption in them Electronic is a good way to churn a large number of tickets efficiently. When you need a little bit more of discretion, whether it's about price, whether it's about quantity, whether it's about the paper or the instrument or the counterparty you're dealing with, you always turn back to voice. So it's always a balance between the two. And as I say, thinking that electronic is there to replace completely voice is just a misconception. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with what Fred says there. I think the, the other thing is that we would add is that, you know, we think this is a permanent feature of the market as well. So you are going to have both solutions, we think, as long as the bond market you know, exists in, it, in its current form. There are so many different instruments, certainly versus maybe other asset classes like, uh, like equities, where you know, GE may have, you know, one or two classes of equity, but it may have, you know, 14 or 1500 different bonds in maybe 
you know, five different currencies. So as such, um, you know, the liquidity in this market is, is very, very fragmented in, in a huge number of those, those instruments. And, and you get many instruments that don't trade, certainly not every day, but often not every month. And in many, many cases, not even every year. And so the liquidity and the way that you execute those platforms or those, those products really is a, you know, requires a different, uh, a different approach. So E, as, as Fred says, does the, the more liquid, the more generic, certainly that the higher velocity instruments. But for, for the huge proportion of instruments that don't trade like that, we think voice is the right way to go forward. And Fred, this is specifically to you, related to your report, Trends in E-Commerce 2014. I realize the method of trading depends on the asset class, its complexity and liquidity, but which instruments do you see remaining in the realm of voice trading? I would actually look at the problem differently in a sense that since the past, I would say, 18, 24 months, there is a general switch from looking at e-commerce as product-centric and transferring it or building the solution on a client-centric basis. And what I mean is an e-commerce solution now are targeted to a specific type of clients and within those clients, specific types of roles and personas. So I'll give you an example. If you're dealing with a long-only asset manager, the e-commerce solution will be targeted around price discovery execution will happen on multi-data platforms or will happen on using voice and a series of post-rate services will be offered. Similarly, if your client is, say, a large corporate, the type of services and solutions which will be offered or are offered, actually, for the matter, will be different in terms of functionality and terms of product set. So thinking as E as a clear-cut thresholds above which some instruments are only electronic and below which the instruments are only voice is, again, the wrong way to look at the issue. I'm sorry, just to be clear, so you're saying that the solutions are more client-focused versus instrument-focused? Correct. Next question is also for you based on your report. As for the e-commerce offering, what constitutes a successful platform? Following on the definition I've just given, it's very much the one that provides the right combination of functionality across the trade life cycle. So from pre-trade, research, analytics, price discovery, to execution, to straight through processing, all the way down to post-trade services, such as, I don't know, portfolio valuation, portfolio rebalancing, risk indicators, confirmations, and back to being over the cycle. Cut or design to cover the needs of a specific type of client. And those features and those products can be really divided into categories. The ones that you need to have in order to provide a viable franchise, a useful service, and the ones which are truly differentiating uh, sets you apart from your competitors. So a successful platform is one that covers the basics as well as anybody else and with enough bells and whistles to really make a difference to their clients 
and therefore to the provider offering them. What impact do you see regulation having on both types of trading channels? Stu, I'll go with you first. Sure. So I think the, the regulation is really hitting the markets in, in two, at least two ways now. I think um, in certain cases, we're, we're actually getting you know, mandated methods of execution where the regulators are trying to push towards the creation of new types of venues. In the US, we saw thefts and we've seen the, the attempts to try and migrate liquidity into that as the execution venue for certain products, in, in that case, derivatives. In Europe, you know, we have increased regulation around um, you know, the new style of you know, MTFs and, and OTFs that are coming through. And again, a push towards trying to make this the execution method. Whilst that will have some success and will have some applicability to some products, I think the, the more far-reaching regulation that's actually coming in is really to do with the the capital charges, um, and actually the support of businesses that are OTC traded. Traditionally, banks have played a a market-making role. They put their own balance sheet to work. They put their own risk to work to support many of these products in the secondary markets. So really what the regulations are doing is saying, look, we we really want banks to pull back on the risk that they do take. And in essence, we will penalize excessive risk-taking. And so risky assets are penalized with capital charges. What this has clearly done is obviously massively reduced the amount of balance sheet and risk that banks are prepared to warehouse and, and put to work in support of the secondary markets. And we've seen secondary market volumes drop. We've seen liquidity in a huge range of assets, certainly the less liquid ones, also suffer significantly. And it's very, very well documented in most of the financial press. So really, where we think the regulation has most impact is really in that, in that secondary, secondary approach. I think the, you know, the chase for execution venues in one sense is a bit of a, a misnomer. You know, people think, oh, everything's going to go electronic. But actually what happens in reality, I, we think it's the capital charges that are, are really the regulation that everybody needs to, to keep sort of furthest or sort of closest to, closest to mind. Fred, and what impact do you see regulation having? I agree with what Stu has said. The capital charges are the ones which are essentially having the biggest impact, and I'm talking about the Bal three Accord. Now, where I may slightly disagree is on the intent. There is a general view, shared mainly by the banks, that the regulators and the central banks, to a certain extent, uh, didn't think it through, and the liquidity drought. Uh, the forcing of electronic execution, the restriction on balance sheet utilization are side effects of badly drawn regulations. I don't believe that's the case, but don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the regulations are as clean and simple and legible as they could and should be. However, there is a clear intent from the legislators, which are then pushing it down to the regulators, of preventing the banks from taking principal positions. They are trying to squeeze risk-taking of the banking system and to push it out outside of financial institutions which are taking deposits and extending credit and therefore needs to be bailed out if they get it wrong. And we do see a substantial amount of anecdotal evidence where non-bank liquidity providers are actually taking up the slack 
whether it's in FX, whether it's in swaps. And when I say swaps, I mean interest rate swaps, but also CDS, both single name and index. And for that type of institution or that type of non-bank liquidity providers, obviously, the ability to trade on electronic medium is a great enabler because that reduces their own cost. That doesn't mean, again, voice is out of the question, but ultimately, the legislators and the regulators want to turn the banks into agents, into conduits to liquidity on the secondary market, opposed to be providers of liquidity on the secondary market. I think if I can pick up on some of Fred's comments, I think I agree to, to a certain extent. However, I, I do think the chasing you know, electronic platforms um, as a means of execution in certain cases is, is already not proving to work effectively. Certainly in something like CDS, where we see the index products, you know, probably 90, 95% of all volume now is electronically executed. It's a very commoditized, very um, you know, liquidity deep type of product. It works really well on e-platforms and has, has proven itself. If you move into the single name part of the CDS market, we see a very different story. And, and even though we're getting uh, the requirement to, to put some of those trades on ASEF and execute there, in essence, anecdotally we're hearing that many of those trades are actually arranged off-platform and they're basically sent through to the CEF for execution. So essentially what you've got is trade reporting by another name. And really the CDS component of that and the, and the liquidity characteristics really look a lot like some of the much less liquid parts of other, other OTC assets. And so I think whilst we've got regulation that covers electronic execution, it's not necessarily working quite the ways the regulators uh, intended, we believe. In the case of CDS, I would argue this is because the U.S. regulators in particular got at it the wrong way around. Because a mandatory condition to have a functioning electronic liquidity provision mechanism is to have central clearing. And right now, the CDX are cleared. There is a mandate to centrally clear them. The single name are not yet onto CCPs. My expectation is as soon as that flips, as soon as the exemption for central clearing for the single name is actually wearing off and you've got a central counterparty to settle those trades, the electronic execution will pick up. Because until then, I absolutely agree with you, when you trade, there is a credit element in the sense that who you trade with does matter on the price you're going to be forming. And therefore, you need to know your counterparty. And the best way to know your counterparty and to negotiate and tweak the CVA with your counterparty is to talk to that person. Once that goes away, I'm reasonably confident that the most traded of those single-name contracts will see the electronic parts or the proportion of electronic trading pick up. Until then, I agree, it's just not worth it. To develop that thought a little further, I think I'd agree with you on the, the most liquid of the single-name items. Similar in a way that I agree that the most liquid of the cash bonds also will trade very, very well and very deeply electronically. But I think clearing itself is also not the panacea. And clearing also requires accurate pricing and valuation for all the margin uh, calculations and uh, processing that, that's required. And unfortunately, in an instruments or in names that don't trade frequently, it's very hard to develop 
accurate pricing or pricing that will be agreed by the market as the, as the appropriate reference price, pricing for, for clearing and for, for sort of post-trade purposes. And, and because of that, we actually think that clearing of the single name CDS in, again, in a huge number of the, uh, of the tenors and a huge number of the issues will actually become something that's, that's a much harder reality to achieve and I think is, uh, is being anticipated by the regulators. Just quickly, with the impact you think Fed raising rates will have on the market and how people trade, Fred? Divergence in monetary policy and the fact that we will go back to normal in terms of interest rates policy, hopefully within the near future, will create volatility, at least during the transition time, and hopefully we'll be back into a functioning market in time. The in time, maybe another five years. So wholesale is going to change dramatically the way people are trading. I don't think so. However, what it will create are spikes of volatility, bursts of volatility, and market dislocations or movements where people will be reverting back to voice predominantly during those day or two of burst of activity. And Stu, what are your thoughts? I agree with that. I think when we see moments of volatility, even recently, you know, people very quickly pick up the phone again to try and get trades, trades done. And, you know, electronics are great when they work, and most of the time they do. But when things go bad, and that can be any aspect of a, of a trade or market conditions, then I think you know, relationships, having somebody to lean on, somebody to help out um, and maybe fix a, a trade, you know, that's really when, um, you know, relationships and, and voice really comes to the fore. Uh, and I think a, an interest rate adjustment, which may be uh, severe or perceived as severe when it, when it first starts to, to come through into the market, I think may be one of those events. And the last question for both of you is really about the initiatives that we're seeing in the market, such as the uh, six trading corporate bonds, Bond Cube, Algamy, of course, which we'll get to later, and the Emerging Market Bond Exchange. Fred, this is the last question for you. Do you foresee other platforms emerging? And what do you think are some of the main drivers of the market? Is there enough? There are a lot of new platforms launched or being launched. In the last count, we did between the 1st of January 2014 and the end of this year, 31st of December 2015, we've counted 18 new platforms. What's happening is... The corporate bond market is broken for all intents and purposes. And this is direct consequence of the balance sheet reduction triggered by the ball free capital adequacy ratios. So the old model doesn't work anymore or doesn't work efficiently anymore. And everybody's trying a new trading model, a new way of gathering liquidity, forming prices, protecting investor anonymity. And nobody knows which one's going to work. So you've got a flurry of innovation. It's kind of everybody throwing everything onto the wall to see what sticks. Have we got enough platforms? We've got more than enough. Have we got the right one or two or three really useful platforms? I don't know yet. Will we see more trials and more attempts before we converge to the right trading model? Probably. Well, thank you very much for your time, Fred. I'm just going to go right to Stu now. And because of time, Stu, I'm just going to ask you about your platform, 
it has gained momentum over the last year. You've doubled staff numbers, opened up shop across the Atlantic as well as Asia. You've signed up leading banks and asset managers. I'm going to ask you about the drivers behind that and to the question before, the competition and how you see your business developing. You know, really how Alchemy sets our, ourselves apart is, is we don't see ourselves as an electronic platform in, in so much that we don't do electronic execution. What we do is we digitize the data and, and we digitize a workflow, but we, we then allow the individuals concerned who've maybe had connections made for them to essentially get the trade done in whatever way they see fit, be it over the phone, over a chat mechanism, uh, etc. And I think this plays to you know, the less liquid part of the, the market that we've dis- discussed. It plays to the, the bifurcation that's, that's clearly gone on in, uh, in, in many of the assets that we, we trade as well, where you have a, you know, a liquid component and a, and a much less liquid component sitting side by side and using very different execution mechanisms. So we play for that, that part. And so voice is a big part of, of how trades happen over the Alchemy network. I think the growth of the company is testament to the fact that we're doing at least some things right. You know, as you say, we are you know, over 120 staff now in, uh, in what, about two and a half years uh, since forming the company. So very, very rapid growth. We have over 10 major banks uh, signed with the platform and over 50 buy-side investors now. And clearly that's uh, our aim for this year is to, is to continue to sort of, sort of grow that. I think in terms of competition, just to your, your last point, we're not really uh, say an e-platform as such, and so we're, we're very happy for all the e-platform and all, all the innovation that Fred describes really to come to the fore. We, we, we are big believers in e-execution for the right products, and we think we've got more than enough flavors in the market, for at least some of those to get, it, to get it right. What we're here to do is really focus on the, on the less liquid part, where we think it's still a people business, we think it's still a, pe- a, a sort of person-based uh, execution, and really just, just to join the dots around that and just help uh, people get those trades done. Well, thank you, both of you, very much for your time. We certainly appreciate it. To RiveSource listeners, if you would like more information on this topic, you can find links to related articles on the podcast notes page available on both DerivSource.com and via the DerivSource app. Thank you for listening. Join us next time. <laughs>